Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it turns out we weren't done playing with fire. That's right. Or or let's say this. What is the natural <laughs> next step from playing with fire? It's having to hastily put out fire. That's true. And so we're following up our three-episode look at matchsticks uh, with a look at the fire extinguisher. Because, uh, you know, it's one thing to be a master of fire, but we have to do more than just create and foster the flame, right? We have to be able to manage it and snuff it out, especially when it gets out of control. Oh, the fire has a mind and a life of its own, and it uh, it will not be tamed so easily. So when we're going to ultimately talk about the modern fire extinguisher, but... Yeah, before we get to that, let's discuss like what a fire extinguisher is in just in general terms. You can think of it as an active fire protection device or perhaps an active fire protection strategy or method, uh, something that you do, something you know, it entails action and response in order to deal with an unwanted or unruly blaze. So not like a sprinkler system, not like a ditch dug around a campfire or something to, to that extent, but something that is done, something you can grab and use or some plan of action you can utilize against the blaze. I see what you're saying. Not uh, static defenses, not the walls around your city, but the, the uh, cauldron of boiling tar you have on top of the ramparts. Right. So I think that's a, that's a good way to think of it. Now – uh, having just done these three episodes about matches and fire creation technology, in a way, it's almost crazy to consider the need to then put out a fire. I know. We spent the last, like, three episodes trying to figure out how to get one. Yeah, and, and contemplating, say, the, you know, the, the, the vast time period, really, in human history where the ability to manipulate fire existed, but the ability to create it did not. You know, it was this precious thing that had to be gathered, uh, that had to be obtained and then kept and nurtured and guarded, carried from one spot to another. But then to, to think about on top of that, you might need to just kill it sometimes, this precious, uh, this precious gleaming god that you've uh, rescued from a, 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 you know, a lightning-struck stump in the woods. But you would need to do this, and for a number of key reasons. So first of all, is as a means of keeping unwanted or unruly fires in check. Mm-hmm. So maybe you have your campfire, but then what if the campfire spreads to uh, you know, some hides or a tent or something that you do not want on fire? You need to be able to put it out. Also, as a means of snuffing a fire to prevent detection by enemies, sure. namely other humans that you might not want aware of your campfire. Right. Light, smoke gives you away. Right. And then also a means of preventing a blaze from growing out of control unattended. Now, um, th- this this last one raises some interesting questions. I, I was wondering, and in doing a little bit of research uh, on this, did, uh, trying to figure out, did ancient humans really make many efforts to prevent wildfires, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's a big part of of having a campfire today is your, your your knowledge that it needs to be maintained properly and you need to prevent this from getting out of control. And when you're done with it, you need to make sure it's out. But uh, aside from, you know, protecting yourself from observation by other human groups out there, uh, I wonder to what extent that was really – a matter of concern for ancient peoples. Maybe it was, maybe maybe it wasn't. I, I can't tell. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say if you live in a wooded area, you would not want the woods to catch fire, right? Yeah, true. 
I mean, at the same time, of course, fire was used rather destructively, mm-hmm. um, you know, even in ancient times as a, as a means of controlling vegetation and sure. controlling animals and it used as a hunting tactic, etc. Yeah, burning land for agriculture, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. But then again, that is when it, when doing so would definitely benefit uh, the people in question. So I guess it's not it's not unfair to imagine that that there would have been some level of concern for a fire going out of control because, of course, if it went out of uh, out of control, it could become a danger uh, to your people as well. Right. I was reading a particular uh, book by uh, Frank Sharman uh, titled Fires and Fire Laws Up to the Middle of the 18th Century. And in this, uh, the historian points out that humans would have known fire uh, first as an enemy, which I think is an important point to make. Sure. I mean, the way animals do. Yeah. Uh, Like the first reaction to fire, if you recognize it, is to retreat from it. Right. You know, eventually we realized, oh, we can retrieve this. Okay, we can use it. We can we can nurture it. We can control it. But initially, there is fire as this thing that burns, uh, that frightens, that is a danger. Uh, and it's it's never really stopped being a danger to us. Even as we've even today, as we've learned to to control it so well in certain environments and in certain circumstances, wildfires are still a huge problem. Um, and uh, you know, fires in urban settings are still a big threat. We have to have uh, a great deal of emergency preparedness in place to deal with those blazes. Mm-hmm. So even a well-maintained fire is something of a you – know, it's a sleeping dragon. It can, it can wake up, uh, especially if you're not careful. So ancient fire masters would have discovered the means of putting out fires, obviously. They would have figured out the conditions that cause fires to struggle and devised means of exploiting these conditions as well. So basically, these are the the general steps you'd want to take to deal with an unwanted flame. Uh, One would be to direct a substance onto the fire that rapidly cools it. Right. Uh, And this is one of the – I mean, many of the things we do to put out fires do more than one different method at the same time of, of putting out the fire. but. So one reason you would throw water on a fire is that water takes a lot of energy to heat up and turn into steam. So it's rapidly cooling whatever you're throwing it on. That's right. And and this gets into our, our next issue as well. Uh, direct a substance onto the fire that deprives it of oxygen because, again, the fire has to consume that oxygen uh, to exist, to be this this flame at all. So if, you, uh, so if you're able to get rid of the oxygen, you kill the flame. Right. And this is why I say smothering a fire with a blanket or with dirt or sand works. It's because the oxygen now can't get to the flame. Right. Uh, Another thing is, of course, is to direct a substance under the fire that interferes with the chemical reaction that's taking place. Yes. And this is often uh, like there are some modern fire extinguishers or recent fire extinguishers that just have a chemical within them that inhibits the, the chemical reaction that we call fire. And additionally, one important way to control and ultimately fight a fire is to deprive it of fuel as well. So much of of nurturing and maintaining a fire is about feeding it. Mm -hmm. And to put it out, you just need to, you know, take away what it needs to burn. And so this continues to play an important role in firefighting techniques today. Uh, We see this with a control burn Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, wilderness uh, settings. So it's still an important tactic. Make sure that the fire does not have its next meal. I feel like removal of fuel is much more often a preventative firefighting technique mm-hmm. than I mean it's hard to remove fuel to put out an existing fire yeah, uh, it, at least it's, quickly yeah, yeah it's like a, a ravenous flaming beast that is eating its meal you know you yeah. can't just pull the bone out of its jaws right but you can perhaps remove the other bones uh, so yeah. that it doesn't have somewhere to jump <laughs> next 
So, indeed, a great way to deal with a small enough fire is to stamp it out under your boots, uh, to snuff it out with dirt, with a candle. A simple uh, candle snuffer does the job very well. A pair of wet fingertips will often do the job with a match. Uh, But water has always been a strong candidate for extinguishing a typical fire because, uh, like you mentioned, a bucket of water uh, can put out a blaze uh, extremely well if it's the right size. And this runs the gamut from just a bucket of water at your campsite to, uh, you know, the various uh, high-pressure um, high-velocity uh, uh, water hoses that you see used by firefighters. Mm-hmm. By the way, another quote from that, um, that from Charmin uh, on how ancient people dealt with fire and their, their limited number of tools uh, to fight uh, flames. Uh, he wrote, quote, apart from the obvious precautions of taking care of the handling of fire, including extinguishing or covering fires at night, prayer was the chief means of fire prevention. Especially as the fire gets bigger, right? Because, like, as the fire gets bigger, the primitive tools you would have had available, such as kicking dirt over it or throwing water on it, uh, become less and less effective. Yeah, they're they're very swiftly outclassed by the blaze. Uh, But once again, like you were mentioning earlier, water remains a great way to deal with fire, provided you can dump enough of it onto the blaze. Yes, and not just for the reason I said earlier. Like one of the the reasons I mentioned, of course, is that it takes a lot of energy to heat water up, turn it into steam, so that rapidly cools whatever you throw the water on. But there there are also downstream benefits in putting out fires. Yeah, so when water comes in contact with the heat, you know, we we have that cooling that we mentioned earlier, but the water becomes steam, and this, this is the conversion that absorbs that heat. Yeah. And then also the resulting steam displaces air from around the fire, thus removing the oxygen. So, again, two out of three, that's, that's enough to get it done, again, provided there you have enough water to throw at the problem. Right. It's a twofer. Yeah. Now, an, an important caveat to this, of course, is this will not work on a fire with a liquid fuel source. Right. Say, like, oil burning on top of water. Or yeah. Something, you know, throwing water on that doesn't really help much. Exactly. But uh, but certainly your standard sort of burning wood scenario or certainly a campfire scenario, um, enough water dumped on it will do the job. Mm-hmm. So when do we first start getting fire extinguishers? Well, if we're extremely generous with our definition of a fire extinguisher, we might just give credit to whoever invented the bucket. Okay. <laughs> which, of, which, of course, is just lost to history. But we, we need not go back quite that far if we rein it in just a little bit and we consider a, a particular invention and a particular inventor from ancient Greece. So we're going to look at uh, someone we've discussed on this show before. Uh, we discussed them in our invention episode on the vending machine, and we also discussed them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode on the singing colossi of Memnon. Ah. That's right. We're talking about Greek inventor and physicist Tisibius of Alexandria, who lived 285 through 222 BCE. And he's attributed with discovering the elasticity of air and creating several inventions that depended on compressed air. So his, his, his most famous inventions are probably the water clock and also a water organ. And uh, his writings do not survive, but we know of him through the writings of uh, Vitruvius and also uh, of Hero. Hmm. Uh, but it, he is said to have also invented a gadget that could be used to pump water onto a fire. 
So with Tisipius, we're, we're basically talking about a uh, his invention would have consisted of a pair of cylinders with pistons that discharge uh, into a, a flap-like valve chamber and out then out through a single outlet. So no hose connections or anything like that. Right. And it's been supposed that each piston would have worked independently via its own lever, but this means that short, quick strokes would be needed to produce a steady jet of water. Uh, so I was I was reading a source on this. Uh, one J.S. Rainbird uh, wrote about this in 1976, uh, a very, seemingly very well-regarded uh, book about the Vigiles of Rome. And, uh, and in that, uh, he contends that a single lever would have worked better with uh, Tisibius's invention. He spends a lot of time talking about, uh, about Tisibius and his uh, uh, invention and later writers writing about that invention before he gets on to the Roman situation, which we will also get to shortly. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so basically uh, Vitruvius centuries later uh, insisted, no, air was involved in this, which Rainbird uh, writes has bedeviled attempts to understand how it might have worked. Uh, so some think it might have used an air chamber to steady the water pressure. Uh, but uh, Rainbird is not convinced. Uh, he writes, quote, The notion of spiritus as a force of, uh, for moving water probably reflects the Stoic belief in a world spirit, which was responsible for such natural phenomena as storms and currents of water. In order to understand the mechanics of the pump, it is best to leave these Stoic connotations on one side and translate spiritus as pressure, avoiding all mention of air. No ancient pump had an air chamber. That's interesting. So like a, a problem with the translation of the idea, it could be it, – it's almost like saying uh, – a way of saying like the laws of physics or by right. this mechanism we know of physics such as pressure. Uh, but this has been misinterpreted as there being literal air in there. Yes. Or at least that was th- – this was Rainbird's uh, argument. Mm. Uh, I don't know to what extent uh, you know there's, there's disagreement or agreement on that count uh, nowadays. But he seemed very convinced. <laughs> So this would have been originally created by Tisibius of Alexandria in the 3rd century BCE. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know that something like this, maybe some derivative product, was being used in ancient Rome. And to get to that, I think we should lay a little bit of context about ancient Roman firefighting before we get to the, the specific technology. And th- this is some devilish territory. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I, maybe first we should take a break and then when we come back we can talk about firefighting scams. All right, we're back. So the first century BCE Roman statesman Marcus Crassus is sometimes given credit for inventing the first organized firefighting brigade in ancient Rome. But it didn't work exactly like the firefighters we would think of today because what's the modern progression, right? You you notice a fire. You call 911. You say, my house is on fire. The firefighters come. They put the fire out or they at least try to put the fire out and then you deal with the aftermath. Yeah, firefighters in, in today's society, like they are, they are true heroes. These are people who come and risk their lives to save the lives of individuals that are trapped in houses or buildings or threatened by the flame. Uh-huh. They, they do what they can to protect uh, uh, you know, your, your, your home and the, the items in it as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really hard to think of another class of public servant that is, that is really venerated uh, in this way. You know, I mean, uh, you know, 
there's a kind of purity to yeah. the aid they provide. Yeah, like there's no, I, I don't think there, are there even any movies about like dirty firefighters or anything, you know? <laughs> That'd like, be funny. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, maybe, maybe it exists. I'm sure there's, there's some case to be made, but for the most part, Firefighters, we tell our children about how they're great and they're, 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 they're brave and they're, they're heroes. And for the most part, like that remains true throughout your adult life. Like you realize that these are, these are, this is an important role and the people who do it are, are doing very important work. But Crassus, he had a different model yes. for how firefighting <laughs> should work. So uh, at the time of the Republic in, in the first century BCE, Rome was just going up in flames all the time. Uh, Joseph J. Walsh, a historian that I'm going to quote from more later, calls Rome a city of fires. The city was overcrowded and the houses were tall and packed tightly together. It was just kind of a tinderbox. Plus, it did not have an organized public system for firefighting at this time. Uh, Whatever public firefighting took place was probably voluntary and ad hoc. So it's just whoever you can get together to try to help you put out a fire. Yeah. You're kind of on your own. But uh, the ancient Greek author Plutarch in his biography writes that Marcus Crassus, despite all of his great virtues, was known above all for his avarice and for his extravagant wealth. Quote, the greatest part of this, if one must tell the scandalous truth, he got together out of fire and war, making the public calamities his greatest source of revenue. So there's a disaster. Crassus gets dollar signs in his eyes. Uh, And Plutarch writes that, okay, so how do you make money off of war? Well, that was mostly uh, by way of accepting or buying the properties of people who were put to death after military conquests. But how did he make money off of fire? Well, here's what Plutarch writes, quote, Moreover, observing how extremely subject the city was to fire and falling down of houses by reason of their height and their standing so near together, he bought slaves that were builders and architects, and when he had collected these to the number of more than 500, he made it his practice to buy houses that were on fire and those in the neighborhood, which, in the immediate danger and uncertainty, the proprietors were willing to part with for little or nothing, so that the greatest part of Rome at one time or another came into his hands. Yeah, that is it's so it's so slimy. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's beyond slimy. <laughs> yeah, imagine so like your house is on fire, you call 911, and then what happens instead of firefighters, a shady real estate developer shows <laughs> up with like 500 guys with water buckets just standing there. And he says, okay, you got a couple options here. You can sell me this house for $5,000 right now or you can watch it burn down and get nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're like, that, why, that's like 1% of what my house is worth. I can't do that. And he's like, okay, 4000 now. Uh. Um, and so that's your choice. And then meanwhile, he's probably – he's got people going around to all your neighbors saying like, well, it looks like this one's about to go down. Yours is catching fire next. Uh, what's your price? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crassus is um, – yeah, he had quite a scale going here you know there's a there's a there's a, a series of Roman detective novels uh, that were written by uh, an author by the name of Stephen Saylor mm-hmm. that uh, I, I think I read all the or I read a lot of them when I was uh, uh, in, in college I think uh, and then they're, they're a lot of fun you know they he does a great job of, of putting you in this uh, uh, this Roman setting and the, the main character is this uh, this fictional detective type character who's very similar in some ways to uh, William of Baskerville and uh, the name of the Rose uh-huh. named Gordianus the Finder okay and there is a scene in one of the books I forget which one 
uh, it is. But uh, there's a scene where uh, Gordianus is coming over, I think, to, to, to speak with Crassus. And Crassus is in, in, is in the process of negotiating with someone whose building is about to catch fire uh, via an adjacent building that's already in flames. It, it is a level of like genius deviousness that it – I don't know. It's hard to imagine. But I, I don't know. I feel like uh, the Roman Republic period was full of stuff like this. <laughs> so this raises the question, right? OK, so they're they're offering to put out the fire um, or to control the fire in well, some way. What are they going to do? I mean, they're not really they're not really offering to you. It's like yeah. they're only there to put out the fire. Once if it he is there, yeah, once the it is Crassus's property. Right. Yeah. I'll put out my fire, but this is your fire. Right. I'm exactly. going to buy this fire and the thing it is about to uh, consume <laughs> off of you. Uh, yeah, and so it was a while before Rome actually got an effective uh, fire department. I, I was reading a book about this by Joseph J. Walsh called The Great Fire of Rome, Life and Death in the Ancient City from Johns Hopkins University Press 2019. And according to Walsh, Rome was finally able to establish an effective public fire department only under Caesar Augustus in the year 6 CE. And he writes that the main reason was that Augustus had been able to consolidate enough control over politics in the empire to make a fire department either, you know, either make it palatable to the other politicians in the city or just overrule whatever their concerns were. Because during the Republican period in Rome, Walsh argues that politicians and leaders feared a fire brigade. Think what this literally consists of. Hundreds of men armed with axes roaming around the city <laughs> under control of some bureaucratic commander. They, they're thinking, OK, that could be a weapon of a rival politician or political faction. They get control of the fire brigade and then they could use that for God knows what. Right. I mean, well, I mean, just look at what Crassus is doing with his own private fire brigade. Imagine yeah. if there was a, a, you know, an even larger, more established presence yeah. that could be you know, corrupted in this fashion. And, you know, and also, like, we don't know this. There's no direct evidence. But who's to say Crassus didn't have people going out and starting fires, by mm. the way? I mean, exactly. When the city's a tinderbox, right? Yeah. So uh, Augustus, meanwhile, you know, he's basically a king at this point. He's got supreme power and he's he's got at least enough power that he could create a fire department and nobody could resist or complain. So he did. And these firefighters were, you mentioned their name earlier, the vigiles, meaning watchmen or vigilant ones. And their chief was the prefectus vigilum or director of the watchmen. Uh, so they were firefighters, but they were also more than that. They were occasionally used as a kind of auxiliary police force to you know, restore order, in quotes, during times of unrest. So it might make sense to think of them as like 80 percent fire department, 20 percent riot police kind of. And Walsh writes that their modus operandi is, is right there in their name. It's watchfulness. The vigilace would patrol the streets of Rome looking for uncontrolled fires. And if they found one, they would immediately raise the alarm and start fighting it. So what kind of technology did they have at their disposal for fighting fires? Well, Walsh writes that we actually know a decent amount about this. Uh, first of all, they had the hammy or the water buckets. Sometimes vigilace would simply carry buckets of water with them as they patrol, uh, which sounds heavy, but, you, you know, that, that's what you had to do at the time. Uh, but there were also plenty of public fountains, and these would be positioned around the city partially for the express purpose of filling water buckets in the event of a fire. You know, one great thing about Roman infrastructure is they did have the city supplied with a lot of fresh water. 
Right. So if you needed to run a, a bucket line or a bucket brigade, uh, you would not have to have it go all the way across the city or something unrealistic like that. Right. You, you would have these points scattered all throughout the town where you could get the water. And as you mentioned, there are a couple of main methods here. One is just running buckets from the fountain to the house that's on fire. The other would be if you could get enough people together, you could form a bucket line where, you know, you're handing off the buckets in a kind of assembly line fashion. Mm. Uh, another option, of course, is rags or fire blankets. These could be retrieved from nearby stations to smother household blazes. But the water bucket method and the rag method, these would be more effective with smaller fires, uh, almost useless against bigger fires. So what are your options for when things really start to get out of hand, like when a whole house starts going up? Well, another thing that the vigilates would have carried with them would be the dolabri or the pickaxes. And these would be partially for access, just like uh, – Firefighters would use them today. So knocking down doors, knocking through walls to get in, uh, sometimes to rescue people trapped inside. The Walsh writes that rescuing people was not a major priority of the mm -hmm. vigilace. They were more concerned with putting out fires and preventing the spread of fires. Uh, so, but that that could all access could also come in there because they could just get closer to wherever the fire was. Right, like if it was inside the house and not outside yet, they might knock down a door to get in. But tools like hooks and axes could, in some circumstances help prevent the spread of fire in their own right. How would this be? Well, if the fire is getting out of control, you start tearing things down. You destroy nearby buildings and structural elements uh, that could provide more fuel and spread the flames. This is called a fire break. It's the intentional destruction of any freestanding fuel around a fire in order to keep the fire contained. And sometimes this would even involve setting controlled fires around the main fire to rob it of potential fuel, as is sometimes done in wildfire fighting today. Yeah, it's like some of the strategies of, of wildfire fighting, but used in an urban setting. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's only so much you can do to tear down houses with handheld implements like hooks and axes. So did the Romans have any better options? <laughs> Why, yes, Walsh writes, yes, they did. Uh, one important technology in the ancient Roman firefighting arsenal was originally a class of siege weaponry, primarily the ballista. Oh, wow. This was a large mobile piece of heavy artillery used for launching projectiles at the walls of enemy cities. You can kind of picture a giant crossbow. And it would have required 10 soldiers and one commanding officer just to operate it. In a firefighting context, this would have been used to blast houses down so the fire couldn't consume them and spread further. So they would they would literally like wage war against uh, buildings that were in danger of spreading the flame to the rest of the city. Yes, uh, and it, this isn't the only time in history when essentially – bombs, weapons, heavy artillery has been used to stop the spread of a fire. Uh, Walsh writes that even in some cases in the 20th century, you know, there are some 20th century urban fires in the United States where we had to resort to dynamiting areas of cities to create a fire break within the, within the city. Right. And, and of course, we'll come back to other uses for explosives uh, in the future. But uh, back to water-based options, Walsh does mention that the Vigilace had access to pumps uh, for spraying water on the fires, but he does not think they would have been anything like the powerful fire hoses we see today. First of all, the Romans didn't have rubber, so they couldn't create hoses like ours. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, they did have these pumps. He thinks they would be they would have been very limited in output, in the pressure and the volume that they could put out. 
Yeah, Rainbird uh, comments on this as well and contends that these would have been basically useless, especially uh-huh. especially against any kind of sizable flame. Yeah, n- not much better than a bucket. Yeah. Nevertheless, they did exist, so at least somebody thought they were useful. They, they were pumped by hand, uh, and they would squirt out a jet of water onto whatever you know you, were, you whatever you were trying to put out. Yeah, it, it does seem like yeah they would have to be useful for something. So it basically comes down to either they were useful in in very specific circumstances, small blaze, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or a blaze like perhaps you know in a, just the right space where a bucket wouldn't get to it, and you needed to be a little more precise, maybe. Mm-hmm. The only other possibility would be if it had some sort of symbolic importance, you know, but mm. I don't think there's anything really to support that idea. Yeah. It must have had some sort of practical importance. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, but both the sources we're looking at seems like there, there's no indication they would have been especially useful. Yeah. I guess the other option is somebody was connected and made these. Right. <laughs> and they're like, let's yeah. let's make sure all the firefighters have this new technology. Yeah. It would be great. The amazing pumps from Crassus Inc. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's that uh, again, nothing I ran across nothing to support that idea either. But mm. certainly it's within the realm of possibility. So I want to quote a section from Walsh here that I thought was interesting. Walsh writes, One of the great ironies of life in ancient Rome was that although the city was endowed with a remarkable, indeed unprecedented volume of flowing fresh water, the technology did not allow the Romans to take full advantage of that resource. Buckets and feeble pumps. The succession of fires, grand and middling, that our sources mention provides the proof. Still, we do not and never will know how many small fires would have become significant had not the vigilace and their basic tools extinguished them. And the emperor's continuing substantial investments in the fire service suggest that these investments had an impact. I think we alluded to this a minute ago, but it is such a weird irony that Rome was like the most water-supplied city in the world mm-hmm. at the time. You know, it's getting all this water flowing in through their infrastructure, and yet it's also the city of fires. Yeah, yeah, and and man, it's, this is one of those things too that I, I think of any time I visit like a really big city. If I, you know, if I'm say in New York or something, mm-hmm. you know, you just look around and you look at just the sheer number of people. That that live in a in a very very small area, and you think of all the the little fires that are going on all over the place, you know, uh-huh. in you know in appliances, and stoves, candles, burnt incense, cigarette lighters, etc. All these all these little fires, and we all just kind of work together to keep them from getting out of hand. And then we have this, uh, you know, we have uh, of course laws and regulations, and uh, and then we have safety procedures, and we have uh, the fire department uh, uh, doing their important work, but all of these things working together to just keep the ever-present fire at bay. Yeah. I think one of the big differences now is that modern cities just tend to have more static fire protection. We've got sprinkler systems. We've got fire-resistant construction. We've got fire-resistant city planning, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And fortunately, we're, we don't have to bust out the siege equipment anymore. Right. All right, we're going to take another break, but when we come back, we will continue our journey. We will continue our look at early sort of what proto-fire extinguisher technology, Mm. and we're going to take things into the explosive age of alchemy. All right, we're back. Uh, So again, when you ask the question, who invented the fire extinguisher, you have to then decide what are you going to consider a fire extinguisher. what counts? Yeah. And for some people, the individual we're going to discuss next and their invention counts. Uh, 
we'll leave you to decide whether you consider this a fire extinguisher or not. But it is definitely an active uh, fire prevention device. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it is a, a device or as the individual who created it would call it a machine. Okay. Uh, we're going to uh, talk here about Ambrose Godfrey. Uh, a.k.a. Ambrose Godfrey the Elder, Ooh. a.k.a. Ambrose Godfrey uh, Hunkwitz, <laughs> a.k.a. Ambrose Hunkwitz, who lived 1660 through 1741. So Godfrey was a German-born British phosphorus manufacturer and apothecary. If you'll remember from our previous match episodes, phosphorus emerged via the work of German alchemist Hennig Brand in 1669. By an amazing method, if, if you weren't listening to the earlier one, he basically somehow got together about like 1,500 gallons of human urine yes. in his basement and then evaporated it. I guess he's like gently boiled it down until it became a waxy substance that he could play with. Right. And I think in his original recipe, he also called for it to uh, – um, the, the word that was used in the source I was looking at in the previous episodes was rot. Yeah. They let it set around and get even more stagnant. Yeah. And what an amazing basement that must have been. <laughs> yeah. As, as the secret <laughs> spread and the secret did spread, uh, people realized, oh, you don't actually have to let it get grosser. You, you know, it's basically uh-huh. ready to go. Uh, but I think he was actually a funny development on that. Is so he's an alchemist. One of the things alchemists often wanted to do was find a way to turn various substances, often base metals like lead, into gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought that maybe you could turn urine into gold, right? And he did get something valuable, but it wasn't gold, right? Yeah, because phosphorus does become, uh, you know, as we discussed in the la- in the previous episodes, uh, of vital importance, especially in the match industry. So. In its transition from alchemical secret to this to this industrial formula, uh, Brand ends up selling the secret to one D. Kraft of Dresden, and I believe Kraft um, traveled around with it and kind of did like you okay. know, kind of magical performances with the phosphorus. My traveling urine show, <laughs> yeah. But then the the urine secret passes on to a couple of individuals, uh, uh, one of whom is English chemist Robert Boyle, and I believe Boyle like basically he was given most of the secret and then guessed at the rest mm-hmm. uh, was able to apply his sort of chemical knowledge to figure out what he needed to do. And then he ends up hiring Ambrose Godfrey uh, at the, the young age of 19 years old as an assistant uh, who helps him crack the use of urine in the brewing of phosphorus. Wait, I'm sorry. I just remembered one more fact we, oh, yeah. we couldn't skip over is that Hennig Brand thought that you needed – specifically you needed beer drinkers urine. <laughs> he said, so I think he like sent his stepson out or something, to mm-hmm. his, his second wife's son to like go get me a bunch of beer drinkers urine. Well, I mean I, I guess it's – easier to obtain uh, at the time than to say, go get me the urine of a bunch of people who don't drink beer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that you had uh, volume issues. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, Godfrey himself goes on to become a major phosphorus manufacturer himself and indeed invented a method of extinguishing a fire. Uh, I I was reading that there there were accounts of him as a chemist. He would occasionally burn himself and set small fires. So, you know, in whether you're an alchemist or a chemist, there's going to be occasionally a fire that you do not wish uh, to have in your presence, and mm-hmm. it would behoove you to be able to have some sort of fire extinguishing method. Right, and you don't want to waste your precious urine throwing it on a fire to put it out. Right, that urine has uh, is, is earmarked. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, he invented a, a new method. He invented a new machine, he called it, and uh, he wrote about it in an account of the new method of extinguishing fires by explosion and suffocation – 
and you can actually read this entire text. It's it's a little difficult to read at times because it's you know the you know the, the wordage and all is a little uh, antique, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he spends a you know a, a short book's worth of uh, text discussing this new invention that he has unleashed on the world, and it is essentially a grenade. A hand grenade <laughs> to be used against an out-of-control fire. It was not a gadget that blasted a fire with water or powder or foam or anything. You threw it or rolled it into an out-of-control blaze, and it would explode. Now, this uh, this is something that has been explored in other contexts. I, I know there have been some experiments with, say, dropping bombs on wildfires to put them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that that has been ruled a very effective method overall, but it does have some efficacy because, you know, an explosion robs the fire zone of some of the things it needs to do. There's like a burst, I'm sure, that like pushes some oxygen yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Explosives do have some fire suppressant capabilities. Absolutely. Uh, but but this one, it has another element to it as well. So, very you know very briefly he devised about three different sizes and these would have all been essentially kind of uh kind of like spheres or you know or, or or bottles and all of them contained a liquid mixture of a fire suppressant um and then it also had a pewter chamber that was loaded with gunpowder so you'd light this puppy or or throw it into the fire and it would uh it would explode and this would spread the explosion would spread the flame suppressing mixture hmm so the explosion has some some flame suppressing powers, but he also was loading it with flame retardant. Right. So uh, it's a, one of those situations where we're probably hitting two out of the three ways of, of combating a blaze. Uh-huh. And yeah, so obviously he was really behind this idea. He wrote the book that we mentioned already. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also apparently had a three-story wooden house constructed and then set it ablaze to demonstrate the effectiveness of his machine. Uh, so it it didn't seem to really catch on to the extent that uh, he wanted it to, but it seemed to work, at least in with certain size fires in certain situations. Mm-hmm. But even though the technology did not become dominant right away, uh, others continued to improve upon it. So during the 1800s and then the uh, early 1900s, newer designs of fire grenades were uh, invented, employing new chemical formulas for the fire-suppressing mixture inside. Yeah, but the fire... The fire grenades of the 19th and 20th centuries, from what I was reading, were substantially different in that most of the ones I was reading about did not contain any explosive elements. Oh, they, yeah. They were more just like they were containers that were loaded with something. Mm-hmm. Like we can talk about the ingredients in a minute, but, the, you know, it wasn't like in the gunpowder mode as much anymore. Right. It was more like this is something you can throw at a fire to quench it. Though they were still – they were definitely marketed as grenades. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, there is, there's a wonderful image that I came across. Uh, it was actually in a – a page uh, on the 99% Invisible website. They apparently did an episode on fire grenades at some point. And so they had a corresponding page with some images. And this one is for the Hardened Star Hand Grenade Fire Extinguisher. Mm -hmm. And you you have to see it. It has like these two... um, Panels, and in one panel you see uh, this like Victorian-looking uh, woman and a child, child standing on a stool. There's some sort of fire in the middle of the room, mm-hmm. and then in the next panel you have some men folk standing around, and one of them is hurling a fire grenade, and the placement makes it look like that he is hurling it into the flaming room, yes. where, where, the, <laughs> where his like wife and child are standing with a fire. Right, it looks like they're trapped in the room, and the dude's just outside the door chucking the grenades at them. 
you know, yeah. like, don't worry, darling. It's just a bit of glass. But if you really zoom in, in, in the panel with the guy throwing the grenade, it looks like he's throwing it into a coat closet. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. But yeah, so I mentioned a minute ago, like, what did these bombs actually have inside them? Some of them were very simple and didn't use uh, didn't use any explosives, didn't even use any complex chemistry. Uh, from roughly the 1870s until the 1910s, a very popular method of fire prevention was to equip buildings with these wall mounts that would just have fire grenades sitting in them. Uh, so you'd have like a little bracket up on the wall. It'd just be there. Often it was painted red, uh, but it would be a glass sphere, very similar in shape to a light bulb usually, filled with salt water. Hmm. Now, why salt water? I, I read this and I was wondering, does salt water put out fires more effectively than fresh water? And I, I could not find any evidence that that's the case. Uh, and I think the reason salt water was used was to lower the freezing point of the water inside the bulb so you could leave it out year-round without worrying it would freeze. Oh, well, that does make sense. Yeah, because if it's just a, if it's like a, a cold warehouse environment, for example, it could conceivably be frozen solid yeah. and would be rather useless uh, or mostly useless if you were to hurl it into a flame. Right. Uh, I found another brand in addition to the Hardened Star, the, uh, the Sure Stop, S-H-U-R <laughs> Stop, the Automatic Fireman on the Wall. <laughs> another popular brand I read about in multiple sources was called Red Comet. Uh, now, if you wanted a more potent fire suppressant than just plain salt water, which again still works pretty well, you can buy glass grenades full of a chemical fire suppressant called carbon tetrachloride or CTC, which is now also known as tetrachloromethane. This was a dense, sweet-smelling, extremely toxic, non-flammable liquid that when volatilized inhibits the chemical reaction that causes fire. It was a you know, chemical uh, flame suppressant. CTC was first synthesized by humans in 1839 by reacting chlorine with chloroform, and it's had a lot of industrial uses over the years as a cleaning solvent, as a refrigerant, and yes, as a fire suppression chemical. Uh, but if you happen to come across a vintage CTC fire grenade, sometimes people still have these fire grenades in their houses. You know, mm -hmm. They were still being manufactured up into the 1940s and 50s, I think. Oh, wow. um, if, you, uh, if you have one of these in your house, we would not advise trying. <laughs> Trying to use it, I have come across multiple articles by like household goods museums and antiques experts talking about this, saying if you've got one of these CTC grenades hanging around, you need to find a way to get it safely disposed of through a local fire department or something because CTC – we have discovered is extremely toxic. Just a few minutes of exposure can cause potentially uh, fatal injury. Oh. It's, it's uh, hypotoxic, toxic to the liver. It's toxic to all kinds of stuff in the body. Uh, absolute bad news. You do not want to break one of these things. And yet, that's the whole mechanism, right? right you're yeah. supposed to break it uh, by throwing it into the fire. Yeah. Uh, generally, these fire grenades would be made of very thin glass so that it was sure to shatter on impact. But some of them had a heat activated trigger mechanism instead. An example of this might be a spring-loaded cap on the container that's held in place by solder, and then when the solder is heated and melted by the fire, the cap gets released and the fire suppressant material escapes. But it would still be a, uh, it would still be a, it wouldn't be a passive method. It would still right. be active. I think so, okay. yeah. You'd still probably want to throw it in. Though, I don't know, technically that might be something that would work kind of like a sprinkler system. Yeah, if you had enough of them around, if you had enough um, 
uh, you know, fragile spheres of uh, of toxic chemicals just hanging around the place. Like all throughout the ceiling, you've just got spheres of water that, mm-hmm. that have like a solder cork on the bottom. And, yeah, yeah, you could just stick with the water. That's right. You don't need to do the CTC version. Yeah. I've, I haven't seen anything like that around, but, mm-hmm. uh, but man, that'd be an interesting idea. Maybe somebody had that. Uh, but it, so anyway, these grenade-style fire extinguishers eventually did go out of style because they were less effective than modern fire extinguishers. According to an article I was reading by David McCormick for the Antique Trader magazine, they were known to fail and they were much more effective when a fire was just breaking out than once it was raging and extremely hot. This is a repeating theme we're seeing as uh, we discuss a lot of these technologies. Right, because it does seem like, especially if you're dealing with just a um – uh, a grenade that is full of salt water. It's kind of a fancy bucket of water, really. It's yeah. a bucket of water that's always available, ready to go, easier to throw. Maybe you get a, you, yeah, you definitely get, I think, better distance on that. Mm-hmm. But it's still delivering about the same amount of water, maybe a little less. That is what's what the appeal of most of these grenades was, I think. It was that they would be right there on the wall the moment you needed them. You wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So if a fire breaks out, you wouldn't need to say, oh, my goodness, and run and get yes, a bucket, a bucket. And, and get to the pump in the backyard and start, you know, all that stuff. It would just be right there. Yeah. You know, maybe this was another advantage, too. Use salt water so that, like, the local Homer Simpson does not drink them all because he's thirsty. <laughs> Then again, salt is delicious. <laughs> you might use them to marinate his meat. <laughs> or to wash his socks. Or to, I guess it'd be brining, brining his meat. Uh, <laughs> brining pork chops in the, with the fire grenade. So at this point, we've, we've discussed several of these different uh, inventions, these different devices, these different approaches to combating the flame. And I guess one of the real take-homes thus far is that none of these devices kind of match the the uh, you know the the energy the potency of the fire of the dragon fire you know and I think that's something about the modern fire extinguisher that is that is central to not only its effectiveness but just sort of the appeal of it like it is a thing that blasts the fire back mm-hmm. to put the fire out it is like a uh, you know the the opposite the anti dragon that is just on the shelf ready to go and it's it is the Saint George yeah and it and it also it, it does utilize a number of the different as, as we'll explore in the next episode. The modern fire extinguisher uses a number of the principles that are employed in these earlier inventions, but it brings them all together into uh, an even better technology. It's Ripley and the Loader coming up against the monster. Yeah. All right. And we will explore that in the next episode of Invention, which will come out next Monday. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes, if you want to check out our three-parter on matches, which is not just a look at matches, but a look at the evolution of fire uh, technology itself, uh, you will find those anywhere you get your podcast. If you head on over to inventionpod.com, that'll shoot you over to the iHeart page for the show. Wherever you get the show, just make sure that you subscribe, that you uh, you know you download, you rate, you review, you share with friends, all that good stuff. Uh, that's uh, how we're able to keep putting the show out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 